reflecting back on these first five years has gotten me so excited for what is to come. I was praying in November, and I, I just heard this word big when I was praying about this next year and this next chapter for our church. I'm a simple guy, so I just, one word is perfect for me. And I feel like we're stepping into a chapter of just big faith moves for us as a church. Big faith moves in your life. Big impact to come. Bigger things that God has for us. And so we're gonna start this year and go big, asking the question, what is the story that God's gonna tell through your life? God wants to tell a story through your life. This series that we're starting is called The Story You'll Tell. When you look back on this time in your life, at the end of this year or years from now, what's the story that you're gonna have to tell? Revelation 12, 11 says that they, or us, the church, overcame him, the enemy, by two things. The blood of the lamb, which is Jesus, and the word of our testimony. The story that God is telling through you, that word testimony comes from the Greek word logos, which talks about the nature of Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ through you. That's a crazy thing to be about God. This perfect, holy, awesome God has chosen to reveal himself to the world, his truth and his grace and his love through you, through somebody like me. We have a story to tell. Your testimony is the word of your witness. God wants to tell a story of his glory through your life. So what's the story that's gonna be told? And my hope is that you don't look back on this time in your life and go, yeah, that was just another like, eh, just another year, another time, kind of did what I did, nothing to write home about. That you don't look back on this time and go, that was the time when I, I almost got to know God, I almost started to live on purpose, I almost got to be a part of changing the world, but I played small. But that you would look back on this time and go, that was a time when I went all in, I went big in my faith and saw amazing things happen. When I got to know God, I doubled down on living on purpose, his purpose for a purpose. I got to be a part of changing the world. I'm not looking for human stories, I'm looking for God's stories. That's what I wanna tell and that's what I wanna hear. That's what I want for your life, big God stories. And that's why in this series we're gonna get specific, we're gonna talk about life and get real so that life doesn't just happen to us. We don't live by default or by accident, but we live by intention and design and watch God work through our lives. It's a new year. That always kind of gives everybody the feeling of a fresh start. Get excited a little bit, get pumped up. I wanna pump you up to start the year. And sometimes you hear about resolutions and goals and stuff like that, and pastors just bash that stuff for some reason. Like, yeah, well, by Valentine's Day, we've all failed, so why do we even try? You're like, okay, well, I do wanna see progress happen in my life. I'm, a, I'm okay with goals. I think goals are great. Vague gets us nowhere. It's good to be specific and see that vision. This is the story I wanna tell. So, so what's God saying? What, what do you gotta do? What's the tangible steps to take to get to that story? What's the system that's gonna deliver your vision? I think that's great, but I do think we have a misconception about a new year, about resolutions and how we go about them. I was reading an article about temporal landmarks. I'm sure you guys were all reading the same article this past week. <laughs> what that means is time-stamped landmarks. So January 1st is a temporal landmark. And it was, it was interesting, it said that these temporal landmarks, they strengthen our motivation to pursue aspirations and goals and things in our lives in part because we carry this idea that we can, because of a, a new year, disassociate from what it said was our past imperfect self. That we kinda just were like, well, it's a new year, new me, I got a new journal, that was a last year thing. So we'll just pretend like all that stuff doesn't exist in my life, and let me just start the year off being really real with you guys, because I love you. January 1st does not miraculously erase your past and your pain and your problems and your patterns. It doesn't. 
Now, I'm not anti-new. I actually am all for it. A new start, a fresh start is possible for you, just not because it's January, it's possible because of Jesus. He has a new creation life for you. So this series is not gonna be about self-help, this is gonna be about spiritual breakthrough so that we can start living with the purpose and the life, the story that Jesus wants to tell through us, not pretending like that stuff's just gone because it's a new year, but dealing with it. We like to sweep all that under the rug, right? Sweep it under the rug. We all understand that phrase. I read on Google in the early 1900s, they started saying, sweep it under the rug, talking about housekeepers that would sweep dirt under the rug or the carpet. And it said this, rather than getting a dustpan and dealing with the dirt to remove it from the home. We can all relate to that. I kick ice under the fridge, <laughs> right? When my dog comes in, I've got, I've got a Great Dane, so this dude tracks dirt everywhere. And it go, it's on the floor and I just kick it over under his bed, right? <laughs> Why? Because I don't wanna go get a dustpan and clean my house. I don't wanna clean up the mess because I got other things to do. It's a new year, I'm busy, I got things to focus on, but pretending like it's not there or sweeping it under the rug doesn't make the mess go away, right? And so let's not think that because the calendar changed that miraculously our past and our pain and our problems and our patterns are gone. But what if we actually went big and we just decided to deal with the dirt? What if we started the year off dealing with the dirt? And I'm gonna illustrate this to you today through another thing that we avoid. I decided not to sweep dirt all over the stage. Another thing in our lives that we avoid, which is dirty laundry. You guys, oh, you're just gonna act like you got, I do my laundry every day. How many people, if you're honest, you had a pile of laundry always in your life? Let's be real, okay? If you have kids, your life is just a pile of laundry. You just do laundry. That's what being a parent is. You just constantly do laundry. I lived with a group of guys, and none of us were especially clean, but one of the roommates was especially dirty. Like, you wouldn't go in his room because his, there was no carpet visible in his room. It was just dirty clothes everywhere. You've all had that, friend. You're not that person. And it was to the point that it'd be like, hey man, uh, we should watch the game on Saturday. He'd be like, ah, oh, I wish I could, that's laundry day. I'd be like, day? It takes you a day to do your laundry? Like, in my understanding, you just take your laundry basket, you dump it in the washing machine, you hit go, and then an hour later, you get it out of there and put it in a dryer. That doesn't take a whole day. But if you've worn every article of clothing that you have to the point that you're naked because you have no clothes left, then it probably does take you a day to do Laundry, we like to let that stuff pile up. We don't wanna deal with the dirt. We don't wanna deal with the mess. And we can close the door and pretend it's not there, right? You have people over and you just close all the doors in your house and they're like, do you guys just live right here in the front entryway of your house? Is this just the only part? <laughs> we can close the door and pretend it's not there. We can ignore it, we can isolate it, but it doesn't mean it's going away. It's still there, it's piling up. And then we wonder why our lives don't feel fresh and new and clean. And so I'm starting this year off with a sermon titled Laundry Day. Let's do some laundry. Let's go big and deal with the dirt and not pretend like January 1st has made it disappear from our lives. And I've got some illustration for you, of course, today, trying to get you to just remember one thing, hopefully out of this, this sermon. Give it up for Nehemiah bringing out our laundry today. Thank you, sir. I'm gonna illustrate laundry day to you, what it looks like to pile up dirty laundry in your life through a story in the Bible of one of the most heroic and tragic figures that we have and his name is David. And some of you are like, oh, wow, okay, happy new year, here we go. We're just gonna go right in. Hey, we're authentic and real at this church. We're gonna talk real, we're not playing games. We're gonna deal with the dirt, and you're gonna see it through this guy's life, that you're not alone, and you're gonna see a lot of tendencies that a lot of us have. So let me tell you a little bit about David. If you're new to the Bible, there's this family that becomes a nation that God chooses to reveal himself through, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. 
And in the Old Testament, they grow into this nation, they've got this whole backstory and journey, but eventually they get into their own home and they establish their kingdom. And they tell God, we want a, we want a king, we want a man on the throne. And so they get this man, Saul. He's their first king and he's kind of a dud. He starts off all right and then he starts to fall off. And, and in the midst of this, this prophet Samuel is told by God to go anoint the next king. And, and in this time, there's this family in Bethlehem and their dad is Jesse. And he's got all these sons. And his youngest son is this guy, David. And he's kind of born at the point that the parents are like, we didn't even mean to. It's kind of an oops, baby. Like, we're just tired from all these kids. So this kid's not gonna get our best. Let's just be real about it. And they send David out to the fields. They tell him to go watch the sheep. That's what his childhood, what his life starts out as. He's the forgotten son. He has older brothers who are more important. They're in the military. They're doing important things. And he's the shepherd boy. And what starts in... David's life, from the very beginning, like a lot of us, in some way, is pain. He starts having pain in his life from an early age because he's the forgotten son. Now, it's out in those fields that you can start to hear some of his songs, his psalms that he writes. And in some of them, there's depression, and there's anxiety, and there's pain, and some of them, there's praise, and there's this intimate relationship with God that he's building. But there's pain at the core of this man. Now, he also becomes a warrior. He kills a bear, he kills a lion, the power of God in him. He's like this warrior poet out in the fields. His dad doesn't really even know that. We know that his dad doesn't think too much of him because eventually Samuel shows up to the house of Jesse and he goes, hey, I'm here to anoint the next king. Jesse's excited, like one of my boys. Okay, sweet. Brings out his oldest son, brings out all his sons. And Samuel's like, it's, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not any of these guys. Do you have any other kids, any other sons? And Jesse's like, I don't think so. His wife's like, in the field. He's like, oh, Davis. Yeah, I love that kid. Good guy. <laughs> Call for him. It's a, it's a nickname. I know, I know David. I know him. They're like, dad, he is your son. They call for David. He comes in, and to their shock, this shepherd boy, this warrior poet, is anointed the next king. And he's had pain in his life. His dad didn't even think of him as an option to be the next king. And the pain doesn't stop, but it starts to get put in the hamper, because he's got to go live his life. And so you'd think, like, oh, he's anointed the king. Life probably gets awesome from there. Well, he kills Goliath, kills a giant for his people, gets invited into the king's court, plays the harp. This dude plays the harp and wins battles. He's a renaissance man before the renaissance. And he's so awesome that everybody loves him. And that leads Saul to hate him, despise him, throws spears at him, kicks him out, and then chases him for years trying to kill him. And over the course of this time, what we're starting to grow in David's life that we all have is a past with all kinds of blemishes and stains on it, things that he does wrong, things that are wrong done to him. He starts building up a past, a past of pain, of brokenness. And then all of a sudden, Saul dies, and this humble, broken shepherd boy is now king. So he's gotta kinda throw some of that in the hamper because it's time to step up and lead a nation. And David is this amazing king. He leads the people into this golden era. But he's wounded inside. This guy fought so many battles. You know how much PTSD this guy probably had? He's got a lot in him. And so he leads Israel into this amazing time. And God says to him, like, David, your family's gonna be on the throne forever. You're gonna be remembered. All this favor and blessing on his life. It's kind of the point in the movie where you're like, oh, Finally, things are just feel good. And it's right at the height of David in his reign that he has his greatest fall. 
We read about it in 2 Samuel 11. And the first verse kind of clues us into David's in a weird place. It says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out and the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So the kings are supposed to go off and fight battles with their men, but David stays back. He's choosing leisure and comfort. I can do what I want on the king over his work and his duty. And you can tell he's in kind of a spiritually weird place. Whenever you read about David's story, there's always mentions of God. He's consulting God, he's going to God, but right around here in these chapters, it's eerie because you don't hear much about God, you hear a lot about David. And you can speculate that he started to get a little intoxicated with his place and his power. I'm the king, I can do what I want, and I'm finally proving to everybody that said I was nothing, and I can have everything. His insecurities and his pride are mixing together, and he's in this strange place. And one evening, he's walking around on the rooftop of the palace and just creeping, looking around, and he spots a beautiful woman taking a bath, whose name happens to be Bathsheba, which makes it easy to remember. <laughs> and he calls to find out who is that. Finds out that she is the wife of one of the very soldiers that is out fighting for David right now, but he doesn't care. And he calls for her, and she comes to the palace, and he sleeps with her. Adultery. You guys are like, Happy New Year. <laughs> okay, we're just starting with David and Bathsheba. Commits adultery. And this kind of dysfunctional relationship with women thing, that's been a pattern in David's life. He's had some patterns, some things that aren't going away because it's a new year. He's got real patterns in his life, and suddenly this pattern has gotten really bad. And now another pattern's coming into play because he's got to figure out what to do when he finds out that Bathsheba's pregnant and her husband's out at war. So now this pattern has led him into a new one that we start to watch. David has to hatch a plan to cover this up. And so he calls for Uriah, the husband, to come back from battle. And they have dinner together, and David's like, tell me the download from the war. How are things going? And then he's like, hey, man, you're home. Go be with your wife. Hoping that Uriah will go home and sleep with his wife so when he finds out she's pregnant, he'll think it's his baby. This is the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, you're like, I thought you guys were a different thing. Welcome to the family. Bunch of imperfect people, right? Well, Uriah's this righteous man, and he refuses to do it. He goes, all my comrades are out at battle. I'm not gonna be on vacation right now, so he sleeps at the gate. David's kind of irritated, and so the next day, he's like, all right, I know what to do. Calls Uriah back one last dinner and feeds him drinks and gets him hammered, and then tells him, okay, go be with your wife, thinking like, now he's, he's drunk, he'll go do it, and Uriah won't. He goes and sleeps at the gate again, and David's frustrated at this point. There's nothing more unnerving or annoying than someone else's integrity when you're living in sin. And that's where David's at. So he goes, all right, well, this pattern has started, but we gotta close the loop on this thing. Because now, I've got a problem. I've got a problem to deal with, and his name's Uriah. So David sends word to the commander of the army and says, hey, expose some men out in the front of the army and let Uriah be right at the front. So he'll die. Gets word a little later, we've lost some soldiers in the battle, and David's mad until the guy tells him, I'm supposed to tell you that Uriah died. And David goes, oh, well, war happens. Don't feel too bad about it. This is just kind of the way it goes. Sometimes you lose men out there. Uriah's dead. Problem solved. Just bury all that there. David's even so noble that he invites Bathsheba, this widow now, into his home to be his wife. It's a noble thing to do. She's a widow. You take her in and take care of her. David's gonna raise this child as his own. That is his own. 
And he feels like, all right, dealt with. Close the door, we'll pretend that's not there. It's all covered. Except the last line of this chapter says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Haunting. You can try to ignore, you can try to isolate, pretend it's not there, but it will rear its head. And it does when God speaks through a prophet Nathan to confront David. Nathan's one of the most brave people in the Bible. He comes to confront David about everything he's done. Remember, David killed a lion with his bare hands, a bear. He's won a lot of battles. This is an intimidating dude. And Nathan, this prophet, comes and he says, David, I gotta tell you a story. There was this rich man, and he had everything he could need. He had all these sheep. And then there was this poor man, and all this man had was one little lamb. And that rich man took that little lamb from him for himself. Can you believe that? And David goes, not on my watch. Kill that man. So righteous. And Nathan looks at David and goes, you are the man. Not like, you're the man, David. Good answer. No, he goes, you are the man. That was a parable about you. And right here in this moment, you're feeling the tension. Like this was one of those shows or movies you watch where like, it started with one thing and you're like, ah, oh, that's kind of bad and they start to cover it up and eventually you're like, I wish you would have just owned the first thing. This feels so bad. We're in season three and I wish I'd never watched this show. <laughs> I feel complicit in this. I feel bad for knowing you guys and you're fictional people in a show. <laughs> Somebody just own up. Well, right here is, I think, David's most critical moment of his life. Because you're looking at Nathan and you're like, ah, oh, I really liked you. You were a good guy in this story pretty sure based off David's character in this recent happenings that he's going to kill Nathan and put him right here, right? But David takes all of this, his dirty laundry that's been piling up that he's tried to isolate and ignore, and he finally has his moment. He turns to Nathan and he says, I have sinned against the Lord, and dumps it all out. Time to air out the dirty laundry. Try to, time to have laundry day. He's exposed, he's sick, he's isolated, he's dirty, he feels broken, and he humbles himself, finally. It's time for laundry day. Scripture tells us that he goes into a time of prayer and fasting, and in this time, he pens the most powerful psalm, Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance. That's what this message is about. Just can't say that at the beginning, because half of you will tune me out or walk out. Because we have a lot of baggage around the idea of repentance, right? I wanna start this year off with a call to repentance. But what we think of repentance is like apologizing to God for something he already knows we did. I'm sorry, God, I screwed up. I'll just put one of these back on and be in timeout for a while, I guess. That's what we think of repentance. For the Hebrew people, repentance came from this root shuv or teshuva that meant to turn or to return home. And home for them was Eden, was shalom, was peace with God. It was the ability to do laundry day and turn to God and say, hey, there's a mess here and I need to invite you in. I need to come home. Like in college, when you take all that pile of laundry home and your parents do that laundry for you, it's like going home with your laundry finally. That's what it meant to them. And, and David, man, he could have a masterclass page and teach a lot of masterclasses, how to win a battle, how to lead a nation, how to use a slingshot, how to write a song, how to play a harp. But if there's one masterclass in his life that I have signed up for, it's his masterclass on repentance. And I know it's a new year, you wanna get pumped up for the year and this is a heavy story and a heavy topic, but I didn't wanna just get you all excited to be excited for a new year. I want you free. That's what I care about. I want freedom in your life and it's not gonna happen without this. It's not gonna happen without dealing with the dirt. 
and we have a master class to walk us through it. I had a year of laundry, laundry year in my life, about a decade, a little over a decade ago, where I was starting to spill all this stuff out. So many things had piled up, secrets and lies and sin and shame, so many things. And I finally had laundry year. And in that year, I did a word-by-word -word study of Psalm 51. Every single word, looked every word up in the Hebrew. Because I was so tired of living sick and living in shame and living with secrets and pretending like this wasn't here. And so I'm not gonna take you through every single word of this Psalm. We don't have the time, but I'm gonna read it to you. And there's so much meaning within it. But as we read it, this masterclass that is life-changing, I want you to look for three things that David does what he sees in repentance. In repentance, David sees sin for what it is, he sees himself for who he is, and he sees God for who he is. Psalm 51. It, the note before it says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. This hasn't gone away because I pretended the basket wasn't there. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. I've always had brokenness, but I remember in those fields who you called me to be. And I'm not him right now. So cleanse me with hyssop. That's the detergent of the day. Listen to this laundry language. And I will be clean. Wash me. And I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. Oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. God, you could take everything I have, but do not take your presence from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Let my story tell others. Let them learn from my mistakes. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, oh God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. You don't want me to just go through the motions and give you an obligatory apology. Here's my sacrifice, oh God. It's a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And then he prays for everybody beyond him that's affected by him. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, and burnt offerings offered whole, then bowls will be offered on your altar. Don't remove yourself from them because of what I've done. This is this incredible masterclass on repentance. David sees sin for what it is. He looks at this pile and he goes, oh, there's greed and there's deceit, and there's murder, there's adultery, there's pride, there's pain, patterns of my life. There's so many things in here, God and I see it for what it is, it's a sickness that's in me, that's in all of us, a brokenness. And that's why he pulls out the laundry language. Get that detergent, that hyssop, God. He says, blot out my transgressions. We think of laundry, we think of like a warm hot tub for our clothes, right? But you, they didn't have that back then. The way you did laundry, if there was a stain, you had to 
get that thing out. That word, Hebrew word kabak for blot it out is trample. Trample this stuff out of me. Do whatever you have to do. I need this sickness out of me and I can't get it out of myself. I've got no excuses. I'm not justifying anything anymore, God. I'm not playing games. I've dumped everything out in front of you. This naked admission, here's everything, God. And all I can do is offer you my broken heart and ask you for mercy and forgiveness. That's all I can do. David's a broken man, just like all of us, right? There's pain in a past here that led him to where he got. Nobody starts their life dreaming of one day committing adultery and murder. There's a backstory behind every behavior, right? There's a backstory, there's pain, there's decisions he made, there's a whole lot here that has led him to just this broken heart. It's, it's a beautiful thing when you come to know God and you've got your resume of stuff and you're like, really, like God's this good? Like he can take all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my pain, everything. Yes, and it's a beautiful moment of salvation. But a little time passes and you should know better and then you mess up. God's had favor on your life. He's blessed you like he did David and then you screw up, man, that's a broken place. I've been there. That's a painful place to be. That's where he's at right now, and he goes, I have nothing to give you, God, except my broken heart, and finds that that's exactly what God wants. Listen to what Spurgeon says about a broken heart in this psalm. A broken heart cannot keep secrets. Now is all revealed. Now its essence goes forth. Far too much of our praying and our worship is like closed up boxes, like piles of laundry. You cannot tell what is in them, but it is not so with broken hearts. When broken hearts sing, they do sing. When broken hearts groan, they do groan. Broken hearts never play at repenting, nor play at believing. With broken hearts, the hymn is a real hymn, the prayer is a real prayer. The hearing of sermons is earnest work and the preaching of them is the hardest work of all. Oh, what a mercy it would be if some of you were broken all to pieces. Listen to this last line. There are many flowers that will never yield their perfume till they are bruised. We're so afraid to be broken, so afraid of what God would think of us. I, I've been in that place in my life, maybe you're there right now, where it's like, if you just knock on me, I'm just gonna crumble into pieces. I am being held together by some scotch tape right now. That's all I've got. But I'm too afraid to reveal my brokenness. It feels too scary. I'm a Christian, I shouldn't have done this. I know better. And so we isolate and ignore that stuff and think that, that we can hide it from God or that's what's best. But when you get to this place that David was out of brokenness, you realize God doesn't want superficial peace in your life. He wants inside out transformation. God doesn't want you to live with a dirty pile of laundry putting these back on every day. He wants you free. He doesn't want behavior modification. He wants transformation in your life. And that's the beautiful thing about this psalm, ultimately, is it's not about David, it's about God and who he is. David starts in verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. I'm aware of my sin. I'm aware that I'm broken. I'm aware that I need forgiveness, that I need to be saved, God, and I'm calling you because you've got unfailing love. That's who you are. You've got great compassion. I know who you are, God. I'm in pain and I'm broken. It grieves David so much that he sinned because he knows how good his God is. And he wants to be walking in the ways that God has for him. Spurgeon says, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought sin a trifle, no big deal. 
But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could have ever kicked against him. When I thought that God was harsh, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Will you not now think of the goodness of God, brothers and sisters, and shall it not lead you to repentance? Shall we not feel within our hearts a burning indignation against sin because it is committed against so holy, so good, so glorious a being as the infinitely blessed God? Scripture, Paul writes that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that brings us to laundry day. That's the beautiful thing about this. R.C. Sproul says, God does not convict people of sin to destroy them. He convicts people of sin to heal them. That's what he wants. When David says clean, clean me, make me clean, that Hebrew word means to be bright, to glow. The life has left me, God, bring it back. I need to get my glow back. I wanna be bright again. I know who you called me to be. I was just listening to the wrong stories about who I am. My pride puffed up, but deep down, the story that David was always listening to was that he was the forgotten son, forgetting that he was the chosen king, listening to what he'd always been told, that you'll never be enough, you'll always have to prove yourself with a God who says, you are enough because I am enough. That's the story that I've told you. That's the story that I have to tell you. And David felt afraid, like so many of us, to be broken and vulnerable and just dump out all the dirty laundry, but here's where it got him. He wrote Psalm 32 right at the same time, and he says, when I kept silent, when I let that pile up, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. And I just fear that so many of us just live like that every day of our lives. I've, I've lived so much, too much of my life groaning inwardly, wasting away because I can't just bring myself to bring my brokenness to God. Here's what David found through the gift of repentance. Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the beautiful thing about God blotting out transgressions. Now, humans will keep a record of this, of course. You can read in 1 Kings 15, 5, it's David's bio. It says, for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah, the Hittite. This will be a part of David's life. There is consequences to what happens. His family is very broken after this. He loses this child and he loses more. Rebellions, Pain happens in his house because he invited the sword into it. There are consequences. But ultimately, the story is not about the good, bad, and ugly that we remember. It's about what God did with the good, bad, and the ugly. We read the Old Testament a lot, and we're like, oh, I wish God was a little more nice and cool back then. And then he forgives David, and we're like, seriously? You're gonna forgive this guy? Do you know what he did? God extends his grace and his mercy. What's crazy about the story is that a 1,000 years before Jesus, David is just crying out for a savior. You kind of read David's Psalms and you're like, what did you know? And a thousand years later, Jesus shows up from the line and family of David, this broken man. Jesus descends from him to establish that kingdom forever, the king of kings. And, and what's crazy to me about Jesus is this. You look at that Psalm and David says, Kabak, trample on me. And Jesus shows up and goes, actually, trample on me. I'm the detergent. You can trample on me to deal with this and I will go and blot out your transgressions through laying my life down for you and make you clean. The first thing that Jesus says, the way he starts his ministry, Mark 1:15, Jesus shows up, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. First instruction we ever get from Jesus, good way to start a year off, repent. 
and believe the good news that everything that David cried out for is here. Jesus didn't, wasn't asking people to walk up to him all the time and be like, hey, I'm sorry, I thought about something I shouldn't have. See you later. <laughs> no, Jesus was saying, come home. Come to me. We make the mistake as Christians of thinking and making other people think that you gotta clean yourself up before you come to Jesus, and he's looking at us going, how are you gonna do that? I'm the detergent. I'm the machine. I will make you clean, but only I can do that. And I'll prove it to you, and I'll show you how much I love you and how much I want freedom for you that, that I'm gonna, not gonna ask you to get trampled on. I'm gonna get trampled on for you. I will blot out your transgressions. So repentance is not a pointless apology. It's coming home, turning to Jesus. The Greek word in the New Testament, metanoia for repentance, means the changing or renewing of your mind. Repentance is when you stop living conformed to the patterns of this world, you stop living the ways of the world, the pain, the past, those things don't define you. You stop putting these back on. Some of us hang these back up and just assume this is what we have to wear for the rest of our lives. Repentance is when you turn to Jesus and you get renewed by the way that he thinks and the life that he has for you with abundant grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's why he tells the story that's the heartbeat of this church, the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son's got all this, right? He's this younger son who goes to his father and demands his inheritance, breaks his relationship with his father, breaks his relationship with his family, and he goes and makes a mess. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, everything. And he gets to the point that he is eating out of a pig trough. My patterns, my problems, my pain, my past, this is where this has led me on my own. Trying to numb, trying to pretend like it's not there. And it's at that pig trough that he finally has his moment of repentance where he goes and he, it says he turns to go home to his father. It's time for laundry day. And he goes home and the crazy thing about the story is he's on his way with a speech prepared. I'm gonna say what I need to say. Father, I've messed up. I broke our relationship. I did all these things. Here's my list. Here's my resume. And if I could just be a servant on the land. I know that I can't ever be like back in the family. That's his speech, but here's what happens. He gets what David was asking for, what we all need. His father runs out with a robe of righteousness, puts a robe around him, doesn't even have time to hear his speech. Hey, we don't have time for apologies, my son, right now, because you're home. It's time to celebrate. Throws a robe around him, puts a ring on him. This doesn't excuse, there's consequences, there's all this stuff, but right now we're gonna celebrate because you're home. I've got a robe of righteousness for you to wear. You are washed clean. We might remember David's resume. People in your life might remember something that you did and define you by it, but Jesus doesn't. This is how he looks at you. He was trampled on for you to look like this with a robe of righteousness. White as snow, just like David was asking for. This is what repentance brings you to. And I found that in my life. That's why I'm kicking the off with a call to repentance and belief that this grace is really sufficient for us to have laundry day and deal with this stuff because I've seen the power of it in my life. That year, my laundry year, I had all this stuff piled up. It had been building and building and building. And finally, I was so sick of the secrets and the shame that I was living in every single day. I just felt sick, truly. And Doug and Ryan can attest to it because they were along the ride for a laundry year in my life. I finally was like, you know what? I, I can't live like this anymore. 
So for better or worse, we're gonna deal with this stuff. I'm gonna get this stuff out. And it was a painful process. I think I wrote probably 40, 50 letters of apology. I had a pattern of broken relationships with women in my life. Had a lot of apologies to extend. I'll just be really, really transparent with you. I had to call a guy that I was friends with and tell him there was a secret that was buried a long time ago that I hooked up with your girlfriend and you never knew about it. And I'm so sorry that that happened. That phone call weighed on me for a year. Had to make the call. Decided I'm not gonna pretend anymore. I'm gonna deal with the dirt in my life and own it and there's gonna be consequences and pain in the process. But I came out the other side new. I found freedom. I found what Peter writes about or, or preaches for the very first time, his first sermon. Peter knew repentance, he denied Jesus, right? His first sermon starts just like Jesus. He says, repent then, turn to God. That's what he says, that's what repentance is. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. We don't associate repentance and refreshment, but those two things go hand in hand. And I want this to be a time in your life, a story of refreshment in your life, refreshed by the grace and the goodness of God. I was buying these hoodies at Hobby Lobby, and the guy that was checking me out, he goes, uh, are you a coach or something? And I was like, no, I'm a pastor. I'm using them in a sermon. He's like, oh, cool. And for a second, I was like, really? Because normally people don't think that, but it was Hobby Lobby. It was a Christian store. Most of the time, people are like, oh, you're a pastor? Your money's no good here. Get out. He, uh, he goes, well, what are you preaching on? I said, repentance. And he says, oh, thank God. I was like, why do you say that? He goes, I'm a newer Christian, but I just did this study, the joy of repentance. And what I found is this beautiful gift that I can take everything that I've been holding and get it off my chest and bring it to God. And the crazy thing is that his grace is free for me. I was like, Andrew, I think you should just come over this weekend. You can get up on stage and I'll just watch you. <laughs> you know this. What would it look like to find the joy and refreshment that you've been looking for? John Mark Homer says that healing starts with repentance. So some of you are wondering, why can't I heal? Why can't this change? It's because there's no repentance. You're not coming to God. You're not turning to God with all of this stuff and letting him in to the laundry. And so in your hamper, what's in there right now? What happened in the past that you can't let go of? Maybe this is the time you go big and you start going to counseling. Open up and let God in. What's that pain? It might sound like it's cruel to tell somebody that you need to repent when it comes to pain, especially if it's something that you didn't choose, something that happened to you. And I had some of that in here too. And it's a cruel thing to say if repentance is an apology for something that you didn't do. But it's the exact thing you should do if repentance is turning home and letting your God in to clean you and heal you and set you free. What's the pattern that's not gonna break because it's a new year? Let's just be real. Porn, hookups, the addiction that won't go away because it's January, but it can be healed through Jesus. Maybe this is the time you go big in your life and the story you tell is going to rehab and getting clean and fighting every single day with Jesus for sobriety. What if you made that phone call? Is there some unforgiveness and bitterness? Some shame or some guilt? What if you made that phone call and apologized or you made that phone call and extended forgiveness as painful as it might be? What's the big move that God has for you? If you're new to this church, we don't play games. We're trying to live in the freedom that Jesus has for us and that requires laundry day. I've learned to do my laundry a lot more frequently. Not let it pile up. And I want that for you, I want that freedom. I want you to learn the refreshment, experience the refreshment and the joy of repentance and to believe the good news. 
Jesus says that too. You gotta go big with your repentance and go big with your belief that his grace really is sufficient for you. That you're not the exception to the grace of God, that that thing that you've held onto that you feel like God couldn't come into. God doesn't look at you as the exception to his grace. David would tell you that. He'd go, really? You think you're that bad? Were you the king of Israel, God's chosen people with all the blessing God had lavished on you and then you committed murder and adultery as that guy? Because I was that guy. And guess what I got? Mercy and grace and forgiveness when I turned to my God and went big with repentance and believed the good news that I need a savior because I'm broken, but I have one and his name is Jesus who was trampled on so you could be set free.